Welcome to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring tech legend Jake Gunkelman. He is the man who has read well over a half a million brain scans. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience, and our silver supporter, Mind Media. Earn up to 16 CEU hours by attending Applied Neuroscience's NeuroGuide Workshop March 4th and 5th in Madeira Beach, Florida. It's led by none other than Dr. Robert Thatcher himself. There are two ways you can attend, online or in person, with the link appliedneuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops. MindMedia, get the latest EEG and neurofeedback technology from mindmedia.com. Their semi-dry sensor cap is a wonder to see and their EEG amplifiers have been trusted in the field for decades. Their neurofeedback and QEG courses will get you up to speed in no time. Visit mindmedia.com now. Jay Gunkelman. Howdy, howdy. What magic do you have for us? (laughs) (laughs) We're not up to M yet, you know. (laughs) We might have some of the I already done. Uh, I I might also include the internal carotid artery. Okay. uh, Which is obviously the the crude term for is jugular. So it kind of gets us to the J's as well as I. Mid to late 70s, I actually did uh, carotid ultrasound testing. And uh, there, it, and it was at the era that the Doppler was only then added. So you could have done uh, carotid ultrasound to look at the structure, but when yeah. you could put a Doppler probe in the, in the, the, in the image, you could actually see a flow. Um, and it's, it's important to look at the flow, not just the structure. You can have a upstream uh, blockage uh, beyond the carotid so that there's actually no flow going. And when you actually see somebody with no flow on one carotid, it kind of makes you like go, oh, my God, is this no guy go. like stroking out on the table here or what's the deal? But, you know, our our body has tremendous redundancy in our systems and uh, uh the 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 internal carotid artery uh, goes it, it splits out into a, a, an entire arbor of, of vascular flow but at the base of the brain there's a system of connections that form what's called the circle of willis um and uh the circle of willis ends up being a way for the carotid on one side to feed over to the other side. So there were some rare cases where I saw either total occlusion, where you look structurally and actually see that there's there's no opening left, um, that the plaque buildup uh, ends up being so great that there's no opening to have flow through. And when you see that, that makes you kind of, you know, take a, a deep breath also. But again, the person is, doing okay they're in because the doctor heard some sounds called bruise in their neck uh, with a stethoscope and they sent them in for testing and uh, uh, in the testing we see one side is entirely you know uh, occluded and um, uh, stenosis is a narrowing occlusion is a blockage 
And without the circle of Willis, uh, we would be basically, you know, if, if one side of your brain didn't get blood flow, that'd be it. Uh, that it'd be like having a stroke on that hemisphere. Uh, all those strokes are either clots or thrombosis, something floating up in, or a bleed, not an occlusion, but it would be stroke-like. You'd end up with one hemisphere basically not functional. We're, we're built with redundancy. Uh, wh whoever uh, set it up uh, in the original design uh, had enough redundancy in things. So if you're missing parts, you know, you're, you kind of can still get along. Luckily, because she's, I've got so many parts missing. I'm like some jammed chicken in the, in, you know, parts missing like a chicken. So, um, you know, um, I had some parts put back on, but I, I, I cut four fingers off and had them stuck back on. Um, and, and that's my good hand, you know? So, um, yeah, luckily we have redundancy. Jay, um, if the clatter breaks up or something and you just happen to be doing an EEG, what, what would you see up there? If a clot flows, uh, up in and clogs now, uh, that that brings us, I think, to a kind of a, a little whiteboard time. You've got That's a heart, and it's going to take a second for me to get ink. There we are. We have a heart, fat heart. You got an aortic arch going down into the abdomen. Off of the aortic arch, you have a left brachial artery going out the left arm. You have a left carotid, and you have a right carotid. And then you have a right brachial. So let's say uh, you have AFib or some clot or fungus or whatever uh, breaks loose in it and it flows up. First exit off the freeway is the arm. That's not a stroke. The next exit off the freeway here is the left side. And there's no, there's no off ramp off. Once you go up the left side, you're either outside the brain or inside the brain. But if it's inside the brain, it's a stroke. Uh, if it happens to go a little further, it goes up the right. It still has a half a chance of going out the right arm. So you actually have a higher probability of vascular accidents, quote, uh, CVA, cerebrovascular accident. Oopsie, an accident. You know, um, you have a higher chance of that accident being in your left hemisphere than your right hemisphere. And the difference is not inside your head. The difference is inside your chest as to the, the probability. The other thing is that pressure, uh, this, this is a direct shot up the left side. So uh, uh, the pulse pressure going into your left hemisphere is actually more than the pulse pressure going into your right hemisphere. Uh, the, the right hemisphere has a, a pressure or offshoot out the arm. Uh, the left side does not. And pressure, uh, hypertensive uh, pressure uh, ends up creating hardening of the arteries as a response to try to handle the pressure. You, you got to get, her, get a, a, a thicker hose, basically, uh, to hold the pressure. Um, you know, uh, uh, if you ever worked with hydraulic lines, uh, you can't have a, a cheap hydraulic line, you're going to blow it. Um, so you, you end up with a, a, a steel wrap hydraulic line up the left side because of the pressure that it's received over the time. So uh, vascular change also happens a little bit more left and right. So 
um, you know, the internal carotid artery comes uh, comes off of uh, the, the uh, offshoot here. This actually has one that goes outside the head, one that goes inside. So you have a extracranial and intracranial uh, um, uh, carotid uh, artery. Anyway, um, uh, that that's some of the uh, eye uh, uh, material, basically. Um, uh, you know, I, I I think we're probably to the J's at this point. Okay. Um, uh, Jackson, Hewlings Jackson. Uh, he was a an an a person who had epilepsy, but he was a neurologist, and he observed uh, what was a seizure starting in in the hand that progressed up the arm. And that was called a Jacksonian march. So a seizure that starts in one spot, a partial seizure that, that then generalizes, uh, that's called a Jacksonian march. And they actually observed that if you have, if you, if it starts in the hand and is progressing, if you rub on the arm and stimulate it, sometimes you can break off, you know, stop the seizure event itself. But the Jacksonian march was, um, was a, uh, a, 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 a thing, you know, um, and he was brilliant, uh, spreading depression, uh, where, uh, something happened in a spot on your brain and then it slowly spread. Uh, this is seen in migraine, for instance, um, migraine, you have a, a little spot in your vision, uh, that's funny. And then it spreads very slowly and, the center where it starts comes back to normal, but the ring of the, the the spreading depression goes across your visual field slowly. And sometimes that's a flickering uh, light. It's called scintillating scotoma, um, uh, but uh, uh, spreading depression uh, was also something that uh, Hughes Jackson uh, observed. He actually, based on his visual uh, uh, phenomenon that he observed, he calculated how fast the spreading depression was going across the cortex. Brilliant guy, you know? Although it's not uncommon to have people that have epilepsy be brilliant, um, it, that there's a certain hyperphrenic, uh, over-activated um, brain that goes along with some people's epilepsy. Not if you got whacked in the head, but if you have, you know, idiopathic, Epilepsy, you may have what's called hyperphrenic or uh, kind of a, a, a excitable, bright brain. What does that look like? Does it start in the back? Is it occipital, or what? What what's happening? There's different kinds of headaches, and if it's a vascular headache, uh, and you happen to be a woman, seventy five percent of the migraine is women. But if you happen to be a man, instead of uh, a, a migraine. There's something called a cluster headache, and a cluster headache is based on histamine. So it's a different chemically, you know, but they feel the same. It's a pounding vascular headache. Now, cluster headaches come in clusters, and you'll have a, a series of them for a, a few days or a few weeks, and then they'll go away for a period of time, and then they'll come back. And the fact that they come back and how severe they are uh, means occasionally that's referred to as a suicide headache. 
because it, individuals that have it uh, realize they're going, to, they're they're starting to go back into another round of the severe headache. Now, in the 1970s, temperature training in your hand, thermal feedback, was used to treat people that had migraine. If you learned how to vasodilate your uh, uh, arterial capillary beds in your hand, you could do it anywhere. And you basically learned it in your hand, but you did it in your head. And uh, you open up the vasculature uh, so that the uh, pulse pressure doesn't end up having distension of the blood vessel. So temperature training ended up being quite useful for migraine. But at the time, the Diamond Headache Clinic, uh, Dr. Diamond, he's, he was a, a, a famous uh, headache uh, researcher and had his own you know, famous headache clinic, um, made a statement that you know, migraine was treatable, but cluster headache wasn't treatable. Well, I had already successfully treated somebody who had a cluster headache. He happened to be, uh, at the time, an officer uh, uh, fairly high up in the state hospital uh, administration, and uh, he heard about our odd uh, uh, work with migraine because it was in the local newspaper, 1974. We got the headlines on the Jamestown Gazette above the fold. Uh, what year? 1974. And below the fold was Nixon um, and the economy going to, into the tank and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, it was it was interesting to be above the fold and Nixon below. You know, <laughs> so um, uh, but we, we had uh, multiple uh, you know, multiple pages had uh, both pictures and stories about our our work and the fact that we're working with migraine. Well, he came to us saying he had migraine, but when we interviewed him a little bit, we realized, oh, this is this is a cluster headache, and he was uh, um, he had a a log of when they happened he had kept for years. Uh, so we had very good baseline uh, uh, information about his cluster headaches. Uh, we taught him temperature training. His headaches went away, uh, but we told him, you know, cluster headaches come and go. Um, this might be just that they went away. Got to keep doing your temperature training. Uh, but he had gone like six months or so which was normally they came about once every month for a few days and they had gone six months with no headaches. He thought he was free of them. And then one day he started to have a headache in his office and he, you know, he, he gave us a call and we said, well, come right on down and, you know, we'll do a, a session. And as he's walking to the laboratory, he's going through what he did to warm his hands and the headache went away. So uh, he basically had thought he was past it and had quit doing his routine practicing. You know, it's like not working out anymore. You know, I'm yeah, yeah. I, don't have, I don't have to work out anymore. You know, but, yeah, but Jay, oh. what, but what's causing the pain? Is it pressure? Like what's um, you know, a, a blood vessel when it starts to stretch, um, it it adheres neurokinins and bradykinins. Remember cytokines from COVID, uh, um, the inflammatory uh, markers. Well, on the inside of a blood vessel, when it stretches, 
the 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 kines are bradykinin and neurokinin, and they they adhere to the vessel wall and pain sensitize the blood vessel. Now the blood vessel is going to be stretched every time the heart beats. The pulse pressure is going to come up and stretch the blood vessel, which is pain sensitized. Every time your heart beats, you end up having vascular stretch. The brain can't feel a damn thing. You can cut it. You know the uh, you know the famous movie where it, it, it slices a piece of the guy's head off and fries it up. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. Was, <laughs> yeah. So you know he didn't even know it was being sliced up. Well, uh, it, it, that happens if you do a nice slice. But if you stretch the brain, it hurts. The blood vessels feel stretched. So that's what the pain is. Uh, but are there nerves in the blood vessels? Like, yeah. what's the. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Oh, right, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And then what is neurofeedback doing to re redirect the. Uh, sympathetic nervous system innervates the blood vessel and it can give you uh, vasoconstriction. And vasoconstriction at the arterial capillary bed leads to vasodilation going up to it. It's like kinking the hose. Remember when you were a kid, you used to kink the hose and the hose would kind of swell up? Uh, well, uh, if your vasculature at the arterial capillary bed is, is narrowed because of sympathetic uh, constriction, the blood vessel going to it is going to stretch. And that's when pain sensitization happens. You'll see all sorts of confusion. Oh, migraine is vasodilation. No, it isn't. It's vasoconstriction. They'll argue back and forth. They're both right about different parts of the system, uh, but they'll argue anyway. You know, that the human nature, you know, yes, it yeah. is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. But how do you get to the to the grad school of pain, the migraine? Like what's happening that and 75% are women, like what's with the brain anatomy of the females, all, all that? It's, it, it's just... Uh, um, they're, they're more sensitive to the sympathetic nervous system uh, over activation somehow. And, you know, we, ha we haven't even really adequately studied the difference between male and female that well. Uh, although uh, it, it's, it's quite often uh, fairly obvious to people, oh, that's a guy, that's a gal. Uh, it's not always obvious. And um, uh, the, the differences between male and female's brains at one point, all the databases combined male and female. Uh, now the Korean uh, database kept male and female separate, and they find, oh, interesting. They're not at all the same. Uh, <laughs> um, previously, they looked at a few females and they said, oh, they're kind of kind of similar. Uh, uh, but you know, if you've got a large database, uh, uh, it, it's going to take you twice as long to collect another large database because you can't cut a database in half 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 of it was male half of it's female and now you've got your separate databases you still have to have the same number of people in order to describe an age range you know a, a, a group statistic works fairly well for groups of about 30 maybe 20 but not five or six so uh, the age range that you're in basically has to have a number of people in it in order for you to get a good statistical description of the of that age range. So you have to have somewhere close to a thousand people in a database 
And if you're going to have male and female separate, you need a couple thousand basically. And, you know, you know, 700 will kind of squeeze you past and be okay enough. Um, if it's only one sex, um, but if it's both sexes, you're, you're, you're mixing and matching and you don't really have enough to separate them. Luckily, the Koreans did the hard work of working twice as long to collect the data to get male and female norms, and uh, uh, they observed significant differences. During the developmental trajectory, early life, uh, uh, male and female, if you've, if you've watched little kids grow up, males and females have their developmental surges at different ages, and uh, you, you end up seeing differences during the developmental trajectory, one, two, three, four, five, six, on, on up to the young teens. Um, and then again, a significant difference, uh, basically from 45, 50 years old on up, where females kind of light up with fast activity, gamma and, and beta, and males go electrically silent for fast activity almost, and um, the, the dramatic difference at that point. So you don't want to be compared to an average of lots of gamma and no gamma. You know, you should be compared to the group that you're in, not the average of both. You know, uh, we're not eunuchs. You know, <laughs> depends. So, Jay, how does vision play a role with migraines? Well, uh, uh, migraine can end up causing vascular change, and if the vascular change is happening in your visual cortex you end up seeing these scotomas, little flashy lights, uh, little shimmering uh, patterns. Uh, and again, they'll start in one spot in your visual field and then they'll spread. Again, spreading depression, feelings Jackson. Um, you know, there's another J out there. That's, and uh, th this is uh, Jacob, Jacob Kritzfeldt. Now, actually, it should be Christfeldt Jacob because Christfeldt was the original person who found this. It, you know, uh, we've all heard of mad cow disease. Mad cow disease is a disease that you can catch by eating contaminated meat. The meat contamination isn't a chemical contamination. It's a protein fragment. It's a, and it's called a prion. And the protein fragment isn't, you know, what is life? Uh, well, uh, bacteria is alive. Is a virus alive? Well, it replicates, so it's kind of alive, but it's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's a little less than a bacteria. But a prion is a little fragment of protein. How, how, would you, how could you possibly consider a fragment of protein alive? It replicates. So once it's in your system, it's going to replicate and it goes for neural tissue. Now, uh, um, th they observed people that ate monkey brains could end up with this disastrous neurological problem of they ate the nervous system of the monkey and the monkey had a prion disease and now they have a prion disease. And uh, although it was considered a delicacy, not necessarily a safe thing to be gobbling down. So next yes. time they offer you monkey brain, yeah, think twice. <laughs> I'll, 
I, 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 I don't like the sauce, you know? <laughs> uh, but um, uh, Jacob Kurzfeldt, uh, uh, or Kurzfeldt Jacob, uh, CJD, um, uh, Kurzfeldt Jacob uh, disease uh, is mad cow disease. And it's a, it's a wasting disease. And once you discover it, uh, you, you, you basically end up having your, your brain eaten up by it. Now, it has a specific EG signature, a diagnostic signature for uh, Jacob Kreisfeld or Kreisfeld Jacob disease. It's multifocal triphasics. It's, it's basically eating up your brain and you have multiple foci of triphasic waves in your brain. Now, there's a few other things that give you triphasics, periodic triphasics, not multifocal, but periodic when they happen periodically in the brain. Uh, that's a spongiform encephalopathy. Your brain is literally going to start to look like sponges with little the holes in it. Um, and it, so, that's, so, so where does it start eating first? Does it matter? What's that? Where where does the uh, disease start eating first? I mean, is it the exec, the front, the executive, just, or it doesn't matter? It anywhere. seems to have a proclivity for the nervous system. That's okay. And have you ever uh, uh, shot an elk, or have you ever heard of people hunting elk uh, or deer? Yeah. In, in North Dakota, where I come from, right now, if you go hunting and you shoot a deer, you're supposed to take it in to be tested for wasting disease. And it's been prominent in elk, but it's also in deer, and it's a prion disease. The big question is, can you catch it? Yeah, if you eat the elk or if you eat the deer, you know, and if you go in and it's tested, they'll usually suggest, eh, you know, we don't know, uh, but you might want to, like, mount the head on the wall and put the rest of it, you know. The freezer. Uh, yeah, uh, don't, don't be eating something that might end up eating you, you know. So um, prion disease, again, Jacob Kurtzfeldt disease was the, the first prion disease. And it, it really stumped people. I mean, where's the communicable thing? Oh, they looked for bacteria and viruses. They couldn't find anything. Finally, they find this little tiny protein fragment and, and the damn thing replicates. So, you know, is it alive? Mm, what is life? Is something that re replicates? I, I mean, I don't know. That's if if it is if it's alive, it's probably the simplest form of life, uh, a little piece of protein that will replicate. Uh, but it requires a host, so it doesn't replicate on its own. It has to has to be in a host. Earn up to sixteen CEU hours by attending Applied Neurosciences NeuroGuide Workshop, March fourth and fifth in Madeira Beach, Florida. It's led by none other than Dr. Robert Thatcher himself. There are two ways you can attend, online or in person, with the link appliedneuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops. That brings us to K. Okay. <laughs> and 
Uh, K, I, I'd like to start out by just the letter K, K complex. If you fall asleep, you're going to go from awake to stage one to stage two. In stage two, if you're being recorded in the sleep lab and the tech notices that you're deeply into deep stage one and you might be in stage two, they knock, K for knock. They make a sound that, and you know, you can wrap your knuckle on the desk, but I would recommend using a pen or a pencil because I've wrapped my knuckle on the desk and busted a knuckle before. So, you know, be, yeah, if you want to make a sharp, sudden sound, but use a pencil or a pen, you whack the side of the desk, that sudden sound will evoke a sharp wave at the vertex. It's called a vertex sharp wave. In a sleep lab, it's sharp. In an EEG lab, the, they don't use the same sweep speed because in a sleep lab, if you used EEG sweep speed of 30 millimeters in a second, uh, you'd end up with a knee-high pile of paper by the morning. And it's hard to carry around a stack of paper that's as, you know, that's knee high. So uh, they, they uh, slow down the sweep speed to seven and a half millimeters in a second or, or, or 10, depending upon the lab. But it's, you know, it's, it's a lot slower. So the, the wave in an EEG lab looks like a kind of a, a sharp pointed slow wave in the theta band or the delta band. And uh, it, it's at the vertex. And it's basically a, your brain's reaction to a sound. Now, you might think a sound gives you something at the vertex. What the hell is Jay talking about? I mean, uh, this, this is crazy. Uh, uh, here's the midline of the brain. We have the frontal lobe coming across and dipping into the into the sylvian fissure. This is terrible art. But on the on the side here, inside the fissure, this is your auditory cortex. But it's not pointing out. It's actually on the inside of this, and it's pointing this way. So auditory cortex, the P100 wave, the 100 milliseconds after you hear a sound, the first arrival at the cortex, at about 100 milliseconds is seen at CZ, the top of the head, not in the temporal area, because again, it's orient the orientation of the pyramidal cell is to project in you know up, and it gets CZ. If it was uh, on the on the surface here, it'd be projected out. Normal cortical stuff is seen on the surface above it, but the you know, cortex that's enfolded into the temporal primal junction, uh, basically it points up to the top. And on the other side, it would also point up to the top. So the vertex sharp wave, K complex, the K for knock, get a vertex sharp wave. The K complex is also followed by a spindle. Sometimes the sleep spindle is called sigma, uh, which is the Greek, you know, if it's all Greek to you, Sigma, um, that is called the sleep spindle. And if you happen to be Barry's German and you observe a sleep spindle morphology during the daytime, you can't call it a sleep spindle because the person's awake. You call it SMR. 
same generator, same frequency, you know, ba basically it's the same thing in a different state. And in EEG, the same, if you change the state, the name of the thing that you're seeing changes quite often. Lambda, eyes open, lambdoid, eyes closed, you know, uh, um, you know, the uh, uh, posts, P-O-S-T-S, positive occipital sharp transients of sleep is lambda in sleep. And it's a P100, visual P100 wave. So the auditory pre-100 is the at the vertex, and it's elicited by a knock, and the sleep spindle after it keeps you from waking up. So when you knock, if you see a vertex sharp wave and they wake up, um, you, you, you woke them up, it's a vertex sharp wave, no spindle. If it's got a good sleep spindle, you probably stay in stage two and then drift down into deeper sleep. People that don't have good sleep spindles have trouble falling asleep, have trouble staying asleep. SMR training is sleep spindle training. And it's great for sleep onset and wakefulness insomnia. Insomnia is probably an I, I guess. Uh, but the the K for K complex is, I think, one of the the bigger K's that you can run into, um, and uh, it, it it's an important uh, uh, issue because uh, at this point we're having trouble finding people staying awake as well as they used to. The theta beta ratio, which used to be a valid way to identify ADD. 95 to 98% accurate, 1999, when after Linda Lubar's study, replicated in 2001, perfectly replicated, beautiful study. Uh, FDA looked at the data, said, oh, theta beta ratio is a diagnostic metric for ADD. Well, we waited 20 years later, we're, we're no longer seeing it as a diagnostic metric. The effect size went from being very effective down to being 40 to 60 percent accurate flip a coin that's a 50 50 split give me a coin save me the mess of hooking somebody up give me the same odds of diagnostic accuracy it's no longer a diagnostic metric it's an interesting metric but it's no longer diagnostically separating normals from uh, uh, uh from add because people don't sleep as much now as they did they're not getting the quality of sleep and recovery uh, that they did in 1999. Probably from media, that's the best bet. But, you know, some people are saying, oh, it's the color of the lights. Uh, you've got LED lights that are more blue instead of incandescent that were more yellow and orangey. And, you know, the, the color of the lights end up negatively influencing your ability to uh, restfully uh, wind down. And there's something to that as well. But uh, um, uh, you've got to uh, uh, look at the uh, quality of sleep. And if the person's recording of the EEG with the eyes closed is 10 minutes long, so you can judge the vigilance, the visual model requires a 10-minute EEG. Uh, you expect to see awake for the first five minutes, in and out of the A stages of vigilance, and then the B stages uh, can pop in in the last five minutes with a little bit of light drowsing, but at no time during the 10 minutes do they expect to see a vertex wave or stage. They call it stage C 
and visualist modeling, but it's, it's stage two sleep. Hey, Jay, you know, question at 10 minutes. Why is it 10 minutes? What are you looking for? What are you, are you just trying to get you, good data? You, you, the, the 10 minutes of eyes closed. Um, the minimum standard for EG is 20 to 30 minutes. And the minimum standard is set not because they're trying to uh, waste your time, uh, not because they want you to uh, feel bored for you know 20 minutes while you're watching the wiggly lines go by. I mean, the, they set the standards because there are things that happen that are intermittent. They happen only once in a while. And uh, they, they gather together the neurologists and the techs and they say, how long do you think you need to do an EEG in order to have a half a chance of seeing a discharge in somebody that has intermittent epileptiform discharges in the EEG? And the answer is 20 to 30 minutes gives you a little over 50% chance of seeing a discharge in a so known epileptic. So it's a stats thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it, it requires time to see transients. But it also takes time to see how you regulate your vigilance. If you just look for a minute, I mean, most people can stay focused for a minute. Some have trouble with that, but most people, you know, you can kind of rally your forces and, you know, kind of peak your performance for a short period of time. But if, if you, it requires you to have, you know, persistent vigilance on a task, like a CPT task, continuous performance task, it's actually intermittent performance, but they still they call it a continuous performance task. Um, uh, that, that that basically is going to require you to keep paying attention. If your attention wanders, you have errors of omission. And if you're wandering and you kind of don't remember what you should be doing, you might have commission errors too. Um, and and you know if you're wandering, your attention, your reaction time is going to vary. The uh, variability of your reaction time is, is something that's also going to reflect uh, attentional shifts. Total time for the vigilance model is 10 minutes. And again, they're not trying to find transients of epilepsy. Uh, they're trying to judge your ability to maintain vigilance. And it's been useful. It, um, in psychiatry in in uh, in Europe, uh, vigilance model was has been used since the 60s. Benthi in 1964 uh, was uh, one of the big proponents. It, it spun off of Henry Head um, uh, way long ago, but uh, Benthi uh, brought it back up uh, as vigilance, basically. And um, more recently, um, it, it fairly recently retired. Uh, Gerald Ulrich, who wrote the the, the book on uh, theoretical interpretation of the EEG using the vigilance model, and um, uh, a, a, a brilliant, classically educated uh, um, yeah, European academic. His writing actually shows that. Uh, it, uh, uh, you, you can tell uh, he's he's got a, a classical education. So uh, um, uh, K. So K-complex, again, for sleep, and it you know, kind of brings in a few other things like you know, uh, Sturman's work on SMR for sleep spindle and all of that. 
but K also is kappa. Now, we've got so damn many Greek names for funny things in the EEG that, you know, everybody that saw something wanted to name it. Some of them wanted to stick their own name on it, you know, um, uh, which is a terrible thing. That's uh, one of my pet peeves. Um, yeah. If you have a name like Wernicke, what the hell are you doing sticking it on the brain? You know, so somebody's got to remember your damn last name for a spot in the brain, which would have a normal physiological, yeah, appropriate name for the same spot. But no, you got to stick Wernicke on it. Yeah, like you climbed Everest and stuck a flag on top of your name on it, you know? Um, it, 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 it's a silly uh, thing, uh, but, you know, it's it's been... Uh, classical in uh, uh, anatomy, uh, people stick their name on things. It, it, kind of a pet peeve, shall I say. So I'll, I'll, I'll let it be at that. Uh, uh, my rant is coming to an end here for a moment. Um, but Kappa is one of those, you know, uh, Greek names for something that's pretty much already got a name. Uh, alpha in the temporal lobe. Might be a little slow. It's still alpha in the temporal lobe. Why call it kappa? Oh, to complexify it. Oh, well, that's a good reason. EG always makes things more complex. Uh, you know, same thing, different state, different name. Another state, even a different name. So uh, alpha in a different location in the back of your head is now called kappa in the temporal area. Uh, uh, it, it, uh, so we, we, we see... Uh, funny names, uh, uh, more Greek uh, names tacked on. Uh, I would suggest that you can call it alpha in the temporal lobe and not have to remember kappa necessarily. But if you're going to take EEG exams uh, at a high level, you might want to know all of the Greek alphabet because half of them are in there somewhere. And uh, kappa is one of them. L. Lambda, another Greek name. Lambda is a visual P100, an event-related potential. When something, your your uh, uh, lambda is a visual scanning event. It's not a rhythm. It, it's an event. If your eyes focus on an image, it creates a visual event-related potential. The P100 wave, when vision arrives at the back of your head, is a lambda wave when you're looking at the EEG. Now, lambda is uh, seen as a normal variant. It's not an abnormal thing. And again, it's not a rhythm. It's an event, a P100 event, event-related potential. Um, but it's seen sometimes in an excessive way. In PTSD and anxiety, when somebody's visually hypervigilant, you tell them, sit there, stare at the wall, relax, you know, uh, um, and they're, they're visually dissecting their outside world. Uh, they're looking out for themselves. They're, they're expecting things, and they're focusing and focusing and focusing and focusing. So you see lambda, 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 all the way across the page almost like somebody is reading 
where they have to focus again and again and again and again across a page, which will elicit Lambda. 1999, I wrote a paper about Lambda in the EEG. It was republished in 2008 um, by the journal, kind of just, just printed it again. Um, uh, but my concern in 1999, when I wrote it, uh, was that people would misinterpret this apparently delta rhythm or delta theta rhythm at the back of the head as a problem because delta can be a problem like a lesion or something. But if somebody has got a reading task, they're going to elicit lots of lambda. So I thought you know, people should realize you know, what, what this slow stuff at the back of the head during a reading task was. So I wrote a little paper about it in the Journal of Neurotherapy when I was technical editor of the Journal of Neurotherapy. So uh, um, <clears throat> lambda. Now, lambda, eyes open, awake. Close your eyes, uh, lambda, eyes open. Close your eyes. If you have visual imagery with your eyes closed, it's called lambdoid or lambdoidal. Now, I don't make up the names. Who comes up with lambdoidal, you know? Um, uh, uh, silliness. But um, let's say your eyes are closed and then you, you get a little drowsy. The same thing is now called posts positive, exceptional, sharp transients of sleep. And an EG land positive is down. So you'll see a, a downward sharp component. Now, some people call them biphasic. It's actually a triphasic wave. It's a, it's a ERP. Uh, an ERP has got a triphasic morphology. So the, the P100 wave arrives at the back of the head uh, for visual imagery. And if you happen to be sleepy and drowsing off and you have visual imagery, it's called posts. Same thing. It's a P100 event-related potential seen in the EEG because it's large. Now, how do you get a large P100? Well, <clears throat> let's get your amygdala jacked up with a primary emotion. It changes the thalamic gating, making the arrival of the visual stimulus early and large. And that's when we see it really well, when they're very large. If it's a small lambda wave, it's hard to kind of tease it out from the ongoing background alpha if your eyes are closed. Uh, so lambdoid stuff would be very difficult. Uh, but again, if you've got primary emotion jacked up, you, you get a, a large P100. And uh, eyes open, eyes closed, it's, it's still uh, uh, enlarged. And that, that basic mechanism is essentially a way to speed up perception. And it was probably adaptive at caveman era. Um, if you're a little bit anxious, you, um, you've got a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety, uh, you're going to have quicker perception. Um, you're going to see things more quickly. You're going to react more quickly. Um, the, the visual image arrives in the cortex earlier, so you can respond more quickly. And, yeah, you know, it probably was adaptive in some fashion. But 
you know, we probably have something to be afraid of. Now you have the image or thought of, or, um, yeah, just, just, you know, uh, uh, the, the tea bag of, uh, emotion has been dipped in the, and that's it. Um, uh, you, you now have, uh, a jacked up, uh, fast arrival, large arrival that we can see. So PTSD and anxiety, you can expect to see a gigantic lambda at the back of the head. And again, yeah, because of the amygdala's influence on, on uh, phalamic gating, uh, it opens up the phalamic gate. So all sensory information goes through more quickly. And then next to the amygdala is the uh, hippocampus. So it records that. So you uh, the memory of it is in the hippocampus and it's, uh, it's also uh, the amygdala is involved in stopping. Um, it, it, there's an event-related potential task called the go-no-go stop task. And uh, you get a, a sign uh, uh, to ignore. That's a no-go. You get a sign for a go, and you're already ready to hit the button, and they flash up a stop sign. Well, the amygdala is um especially on the right side is responsible for inhibition and stopping so uh the amygdala on the right side communicates with the insula on the right side uh, which is the salience network and uh so uh, when the stop sign pops up uh the amygdala uh, catches it and um you, you basically have the insula uh, and the operculum on the right side, the frontal lobe inhibition, the ability to gate or stop emotions or behaviors. So uh, behavioral expression or emotional expression can be stopped by uh, that. So uh, uh, the amygdala on the right side and the insula on the right side, and again, the lateral frontal area that kind of lays over top of the insula that network is basically responsible for uh, affective gating and uh, impulse control. And you, you end up seeing uh, disturbances in that in people who have difficulty perceiving social context and things. Uh, L for lateralization. You know, uh, we have uh, generally language function, L, language lateralization, left hemisphere. But not everybody has their language on their left hemisphere. There are some left-handers, only about 10% of the left-handers, but about 10% of the people that are left-hand dominant end up having a hemispheric reversal. So their emotional hemisphere is on the left and their language hemisphere is on the right. And how do you know? Well, there's something called a WADA test. W-A-D-A, the WADA test injects into your carotid artery on the left side a benzodiazepine, Ativan, or Valium, it used to be Valium, but Ativan is common now. And if you lose language function real quickly, that's your language hemisphere. Now, if you wait, it'll numb other things out because of the circle of Willis. Remember, we said this, that the two hemispheres do communicate. But uh, if you inject it on the left side and you suddenly lose language, that was your language hemisphere. But it takes it a while if you're still talking to the guy who did the injection shortly afterwards, they know your hemisphere 
as reversed. It's on the right side. The gold standard for identification of hemispheric reversal is the WADA test. Some people use thermal imaging. Now, thermal imaging is okay on somebody like me where you've got a lot of skin because hair gets in the way of seeing the, the temperature. Uh, and they look at the face because that's where you've got skin. And uh, they, they, they see which side looks hotter. The hotter the side, the better the blood flow, the more dominance function demands flow, and you get more temperature. Uh, they estimate sometimes 30%. You know, I, 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 I think that the WADA test, which finds 10%, is a really hard to argue with. I mean, temperature on your skin on the forehead doesn't necessarily indicate which hemisphere is language. Um, the, the WADA test, I think, is the gold standard. The 30% is, I think, an overestimate. Now, there are some things that predict the lateralization a little bit more. Uh, left-handers that have a strong family history of left-handedness, and when they write, they curl. Uh, uh, if they, they hook their hand all the way around and kind of pull it across the page, that's 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 uh, pulling instead of pushing. And most people that write basically have the pencil sticking out and uh, they, uh, the, the, they don't hook their hand all the way around. So the left-handers that hook their hand all the way around and have a strong family history of left-handedness have a higher probability of a reversal than somebody who is, happens to be left-handed, but they don't have any history of any left-handedness in the family. And uh, they, they write by holding the pencil like normal people hold the pencil. This is just what I've seen in the corporate boardroom for like 20 years. CEOs, CFOs, the C-levels, they all do that. I've, not all, but I mean, a good majority, you see them left-handed, they're jerks. <laughs> no, no sensitivity, but they they do write like that. So I've I've seen it. Well, uh, not everybody uh, that has a hooked writing ends up being a reversal. But again, it's a factor if if you're looking to predict whether there's actually a reversal or not with a left-hander. Uh, check the family history. I mean, not everybody's going to be able to do a WADA test. Uh, first of all, uh, are you licensed to do an injection? But, you know, I, I'm a psychologist or I'm a counselor. Well, I'm sorry, you don't, unless you're a phlebotomist or an MD, sticking somebody with a needle is going to get you in trouble. Acupuncture needles aside, I mean, that's a separate licensure. Uh, but if you're going to do an injection into a carotid, you better have a license for it, you know. Um, uh, you know it's, and, and Nobody wants to be stuck by a rookie, you know. <laughs> so, um, if you if you've ever had a a, fl a phlebotomist that was a, um, kind of not confident, <laughs> hunt, hunt and pack, uh, for for uh, an artery is is not a good way to end up with an injection. So, um, anyway, uh, I think we've gone through a few of the. Uh, letters of the alphabet, Jake, lateralization, and uh, lambda. There's probably other L's in there. I'll catch you another time around. You got it. Yeah, next bye -bye. week.
The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience, and our silver supporter, Mind Media. Earn up to 16 CEU hours by attending Applied Neuroscience's NeuroGuide Workshop March 4th and 5th in Madeira Beach, Florida. It's led by none other than Dr. Robert Thatcher himself. There are two ways you can attend, online or in person, with the link appliedneuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops. MindMedia, get the latest EEG and neurofeedback technology from mindmedia.com. Their semi-dry sensor cap is a wonder to see and their EEG amplifiers have been trusted in the field for decades. Their neurofeedback and QEG courses will get you up to speed in no time. Visit mindmedia.com now.